Alrighty, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihi al-kareem amma ba'd. We express our praise and, gra- our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala, and we seek blessings upon the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Hey, Rahim, have we met before? I feel like we've met both from your name and from your face. I, I don't think we met. Okay, maybe then. Or maybe I, I don't remember. Maybe we met at like a group or event. Okay, maybe Brown. Anyway, all right. Uh, for all of you, any questions about anything at all from last week's conversation? Grabbing water really quick. Okay. Okay. So let's return back to Euthyphro. Uh, I'll pull up my share screen. I'm pulling up a different document. Oh, mashallah. I don't have to pull up a different document because mashallah, Brother Fezan is highly. I found, I saw your name on uh, Book of Muslim. It's like, man. He's, he's a superstar. <laughs> that was when they first started and their standard was much lower. <laughs> they just run in bro. How much you charge? Like like five thousand dollars a session? I'm I'm very low hanging fruit. I'll do it for anything. Mm. Oh. Okay. Oh yeah, I have problems opening this, but that's okay. Uh I'll have a different one. And so let's shareification. All right, can you all see this? Yes. Yeah, same basic thing. So last we left off, we have Socrates running into Euthyphro uh, outside the courthouse and right here. And so... uh, Euthyphro is asking, okay, you know, what what's happened? Socrates said this kid, Miletus, has filed charges against me. What well, is a charge, a very serious charge, which shows a good deal of character in the young man, for which he is certainly not to be despised. He says he knows how the youth are corrupted and who are their corruptors. I fancy that he must be a wise man, and seeing that I am the reverse of a wise man, he has found me out. So he might be talking semi-sarcastically or satirically, but the point being that Miletus is detecting that I'm doing something wrong. I don't see that I'm doing something wrong, but Miletus is. And that is corrupting the youth. So you're probably already familiar with this. This is the legendary charge against Socrates. And of our mother, the state is to be the judge. So we had a conversation about Ummah and I think, um, uh, Fezan, did you send them the, the thing you sent me about Umma and such? I did, yes. Okay, very good. Hopefully I'll read it. Of all our political men, he is the only one who seems to me to begin in the right way with the cultivation of virtue in, in youth. The question I left for all of you, and hopefully some people did it, was what would you put in a curriculum for teaching young people? Like a good husbandman, he makes the young shoots his first care and clears away us who are the destroyers of them. There's only the first step he will afterward attend to the other elder branches. And if he goes on as he has begun, he'll be a very great public benefactor. So again, Socrates sounds like he's being kind of cynical about what Miletus is trying, almost like regarding uh, Miletus as a young punk. But what is your answer to this question? What are topics to teach to the young people? Like let's say your own children, grade school age, what are your thoughts? Anybody? Uh, who is Allah? Okay, so Tawheed, how far do you get into who is Allah? 
you teach the nine nine names? Um, I would say just a fundamental baseline of who Allah is. Okay, um, so how far? The, like qualities, so His mercy. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I think you know you talk about the mercy of Allah. You talk about um, why we worship Him, um, the things that we're asked to do. Okay, and if we do good, then we're rewarded. Um, and kind of, I guess, making it very geared towards you know their school system. So you know, if you mean? get good grades. If you get good grades, you're rewarded with this. Um, if you do well in school, then you're rewarded with that. So kind of along the same lines of okay. if you do what's asked of you, um, you know, you're rewarded with paradise. Okay. All right. Any other thoughts? Um, so for me, uh, for me, it would be like initially just helping them kind of realize you know, just being grateful, like realizing the blessings, right? So for example, like I do this for my son every night is, you know, we'll do, you know, if you had a good day, why did you have a good day, right? So we'll list up all the good things that happen. Nice. And at the end, we'll tie it to why did these things happen, right? It's because of Allah. And we say Alhamdulillah because of that, right? So just for me, it's just initially just having them just feel thankful for all the good things that happen and kind of just working off that beauty, that gratefulness and thankfulness, right. right? Okay. Anyone else? Uh, I think for me, along with those things, maybe it's similar to what uh, is kind of in here is just having like a very basic uh, framework of ethics, you know, not like crazy drown them in fifth or anything, but, you know, basic sort of do's and don'ts type of stuff. I had a question. <clears throat> when you say, uh, sorry, I missed last week I, and I didn't get the clarification, but did you mean uh, when you say teach, like what does this mean only in terms of theology? Um, or can this be everything? I was speaking primarily in the context of what should parents focus on. Because in- I feel like at grade school, a big thing could, is also. You know, beyond theology, I think for kids, it's like um, understanding the importance of good actions and being good to others. You could always tie that into, you know, you tie it back into like, obviously, Allah and, um, you know, into theology. But I think like having good character, so making sure that like you're kind to others, you're not lying, you're telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're trying to be just I think kids have a very innate sense of like what they perceive as justice and mm-hmm. like right and wrong mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's important to reinforce those concepts and uh, mm-hmm. make sure they're like just well-rounded people mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know Bazan, what do you think you have children uh, I do and um, I don't it's want like them to must teach them how to be <laughs> I don't want them to literally. No, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. They need to know the root letters of every word that I say. Um, Well, I kind of just echoing what everybody else said, I kind of divided my thing, um, some topics into three sections. So, like, one is about belief Mm -hmm. and um, being comfortable with knowing your purpose, knowing Allah is the creator, Mm -hmm. and making Allah your focus in life. 
And yeah. so I don't know how, to the, which extent to go, but like, I know that's one area definitely I want to tackle. Yeah. Um, the second is like actual uh, fiqh type things of like practical things that they need to know to actually do their, carry out the worship that they need, um, that they need to do, they're responsible for. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is like uh, kind of how Adnan was talking about more like everyday um, like life skills slash like them and the rest of the world and various topics about social interpersonal type of um, areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ibrahim, hey, what do you think? Do you have children? Yeah, no, I have no children um, yet. Inshallah, one day. Um, one one thing that I learned was that at the very beginning that you established the love for Allah. So mm-hmm. really, just honing in on that first relationship, building that relationship, um, just like a parent for with their children, but Allah with with uh, the ch- child, okay. um, getting them to be able to say. I love my mom, I love my dad, I love my brother, and I love Allah. Um, and then everything afterwards, once you establish that love comes afterwards. Mm-hmm. All righty. Anyone else? Ali Sharif, what do you think? Yeah, I think um it's it's a little, I think it's it's uh in general, um it kind of echoes what everyone previously had said i think for me um kind of understanding uh i think every child is different right so you kind of have to understand where they're at what what kind of psychology i guess they have um but like in general i think um character is definitely a big big uh, is very important for me but um establishing uh, some kind of relationship with them uh helping them understand uh, uh, you know, who Allah is, how to, how to think through, um, I think kind of the helping them think through, uh, like their environment, um, helping them think about God and, and things like that. Um, um, yeah, sorry. It's a bit of a <laughs> wishy-washy answer, but no, it's all good. Yeah. Okay. So let me, anybody else while I'm pulling up my screen. Uh, one thing, uh, yeah, that came to mind, I think the biggest thing in all of that is to just be a mod, you know, try your best to be a model mm-hmm. yourself. Uh, I remember hearing like, I think it was, I heard it somewhere, but it was like children rarely listen to their elders, uh, but they have never once failed to like imitate them. Mm. And I always, that always like stuck That's with me because mm-hmm. I feel like uh, kids are very good at imitating and like internalizing behavior rather than like, you tell them and then they'll do it or they're, Mm-hmm. I think that's a very fundamental point because a point because the follow up question would be, how do you teach love for Allah? If you have love for Allah, your your child is going to take it seriously. Uh, let me give you two models of learning um, for your consideration. All right, there's one. That's one model, and then here's another one. Okay, so model one for your consideration is what it ought to be. Model two is what it is. So I'm talking about teaching of Islam in America, all ages. And I'm saying this having run a Sunday school and having had to butt heads with people who are not educators who wanted to teach things a particular way 
and parents who wanted to learn things, wanted their kids to learn things a particular way. Here's what it ought to be, ought to be is as follows. A very small amount of theology. And by small amount, I'm saying essentially about two paragraphs, less than a page. Anything more than that is superfluous. It might have contextual necessity, depending upon a person's questions later on, but it's basically the Shahada, Iman Mufassal, Iman Mujmal. The Shahada, and then Amantu Billahi, Malaikatahi, Kutubihi, Wurusuli, so forth and so on, right? I believe in Allah, the angels, the books, the messengers, the divine decree, the rising from the dead. And last day, yeah, I don't remember if I mentioned last day. And to I believe in Allah with all of his attributes, and I believe in and aspire to fulfill his commands. And maybe a little bit beyond that. That's all you need. Because everything you add to that is going to also add clutter. So the easiest example of that is that if you're teaching the Aqidah of Imam Tahawi, right? That is the central text of teaching Aqidah in America in 2022. You're going to have a whole section on the fact that the Quran is is uh, uncreated, the word of God. In 2022, 1444, at that point is irrelevant. Uh, to the point that it becomes distraction. The commentary can make it relevant, but that applies to everything. Okay. And so I'm saying the amount of theology you need is very small. If you're in an environment where there's a presence of people who claim to be Muslim and they have problematic beliefs, you can add some bullet points to the to the theology to you know to be clear of what we believe, what we don't believe. Okay. Then, and this is not drawn to scale. You need a little bit, but not that much thick. What is the core of what you need? You need to know how to pray with all elements. Tahara, uh, what do you do if you make a mistake? What do you do if you forget? What do you do if you enter prayer late? All of that stuff. Fasting, there isn't much to know. But, I mean, literally, you can sum up all the things you need to know about fasting, probably, again, in like five sentences. Hajj, you don't need to know anything except when you're going on Hajj. Okay. Zakat, the details of zakat, you you need to know on a need-to-know basis. Okay. And so it's assumed here is that there's experts or scholars you can go to. So everything else I want you to consider, the most wholesome answer is probably the Islamic answer. The most wholesome answer is probably the Shari'i answer. Now, to be fair, there might be times where it's hard to figure that out. But in terms of the core of what a layperson needs, it's, I said theology, it's basically like a couple of paragraphs. Thick, probably about two pages, three pages. So. And then some amount of tazkia. And even this tazkia, this purification, Ideally, is with some sort of mentor. At least some basic tools. 
of purification. Even the core of that is fulfilling the nuffle. Okay. And then at the top, and we'll do this big area in a moment, is excellence. Working to towards excellence in everything you do. Yeah. Now, what is this area in between? It is learning to give and receive rahma, which in this context is relationships. At the individual level, it's character and manners. At the collective level, it is service and justice. This is, so what am I saying? That the bulk of your Islam is found in how you conduct your relationships. Reflect on this and think of, you know, pushbacks that you may have either now or in the future. Right. I had one student who stopped taking classes with me because of this, but he seems to be the exception. Phase on. So where does like um, contemporary issues uh, kind of fall in? Like, I mean, at middle school, you know, they're exposed to like um, LGBTQ stuff. I don't know, a bunch of other stuff. So, okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, most everything you can think of will fall into relationships. Like, do you need to tell your child, all right, we don't believe in gay marriage? I mean, you can technically say that's fiqh. But um, the how do you conduct yourself is the more important part. Where would you put, like, Quran, like, understanding slash memorization slash... So here's here's the, the radical part. I mean, we're all, you know, not qurani yun, but we're all hardcore Quran-type people. For the people who are aspiring to more, yeah, you need more of this. You need uh, Quran all over the place. But I'm saying even then, what about Quran would you be teaching? Right? Yeah, meaning stories of prophets. I think those stories of prophets and such are relevant as you can make them relevant. Right there in the Quran, so obviously they're important, but I'm saying <clears throat> what we have built into there um, will be elements of each of these things, the consequences of not following the theology and all those things. Yeah. But think of this as the bare bones. No. And now you're raising your hand, or are you just... No. So let's shift to is. This is my suggestion for your consideration. The learning of Islam in America most of which is on YouTube. There's a whole lot of theology. A whole lot of law. A whole lot of law. And a whole lot of trivia. And the sad part is that all of the knowledge is actually important, but the fundamental role in a person's life is trivia. And, and so this includes a lot of what we teach about the Quran uh, or the Sita of the Prophet, peace be upon him. 
And the test that I give people is once you've completed a course or a book, what is the change in your action? However much change in your action has taken place is how much the book was actually or the course was actually a benefit. How much you feel super stimulated. Oh, man, my eyes are wide open. But your actions have not changed is how much you've been duped. That's also for all of you to test in terms of what we're going through, because we're actually going through philosophy. So you're going to feel like your mind's being stretched. But does it change result in any sort of even minor change of action? Good. Any thoughts, reflections on all this? Would you consider a change in action um, like uh, to be like even as minor as, let's say, how you think about things? Could that if be... Or how you approach something. So I'd suggest that's still not a change of action. Right? If you are more patient, that is a change of action. What if you felt like you were more grateful? But well, it, then, didn't, it didn't change what you did. I do think that that is a real thing, yes. That, that increase of gratitude. But I think that is a very, very easy way to be self-deluded. That a mm. person may think that they're grateful. But mm. how do you truly illustrate your gratitude by increased ibadah and increased generosity and such? Make sense? Mm -hmm. That I do think a whole lot of contemporary Muslim learning makes people feel super warm and fuzzy. They'll use terms like iman rush and all that stuff. And I think most of it is delusion, spiritual delusion for your consideration. Iman Rush was like early 2000s. <laughs> I am uh, people very close to me. He's like, I go to these classes and I feel Iman Rush. Right. And then I feel uh, Iman decline and depression. Yeah. What were you saying, well, Yeah, I was going to say, um, I feel like the uh, relationship piece is actually uh, a lot more keyer than maybe we realize because every, you know, everyone, when it comes to relationship with, with I guess with people or even just with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? That's that's like the ultimate relationship. It's different. And I think as like a as a scholar or I don't know, I don't know which specific scholar, like a mufti or or what what whichever specialization it fall under, but um you kind of have to like it's not a, it's not really about like a pick and choose like what law you want to follow, but depending on where the person is at when their relationship with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala and with the relationship with the situation in general, you kind of have to facilitate, uh, uh, pick the best path to facilitate that um, you know that relationship with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala in like the positive direction. And so the law itself also kind of it, it kind of configures itself that way as well in mm -hmm. a way that kind of helps promote them and pushes them to become a better you know mm -hmm. muslim and i think like i feel like a lot of muslims don't really understand that it's like it's like the law is black and white right mm -hmm. it's, it's this and it's not that whereas you know law can is i think i don't know where i heard this from i could be wrong but i think like the, the mufti is supposed to have like um I think, or no, not like the, like the, the, I don't know what's called the ifta or whatever, the ruling that muftis give is supposed to be, the yeah, of course, <laughs> it's supposed to be like, um, 
I think it's supposed to be individualized, right? I mean, there are general fatwas, but but like I think it's in it's contextual, right? It's contextual. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, it's really like meant for. It should be specific to the person, right? Like, it's not like. Yeah, it depends know, on what I'm the question sure. is. Like, for example, you know, is it okay to rise up against your leader? And that was a big question that came up, you know, ten years ago in the Arab world. And and so some muftis are like, no. Right. Mm. And they're speaking from a legal perspective, which is sound legal reasoning, but that was the wrong answer for what the people wanted or needed to hear. Mm. Right. Yeah. I mean, even the point, if to, to think about it, the point about the relationship with Allah on the left side, that's the first three rectangles. Right. What is theology? It's making sure my orientation is correct. What is fiqh? Making sure my actions are valid. And what is tazkiyah? How do I keep improving quality? So, any other thoughts, questions, reflections? Um, reflection. Uh, so, I like that this kind of challenges, at least for me, like my paradigm um, a little bit. I mean, quite a bit, actually. Um, I think the trivia thing is a good way to summarize a lot of what happens. I yeah. think it's also because, like, we can get into why this is the case, not necessarily right now, but I feel like it's 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 the easiest thing to deliver, like, in mass to people, and so people have, have just come to appreciate this to be what learning is. Yes. Um, and I find myself um, just kind of reflecting and thinking when I'm, you know, when my child is doing something and I'm, I give him a bit of trivia, I'm like, oh, did you know the Prophet also did it something, something? They're like, you know, it's it's a fact. But there's been other times where where I'm focusing on the relationship aspect and I'm like, listen, we, I also, we've all gone through this before and this is the way that we um, control ourselves in this situation yeah, or something like different. that. And it's, and yeah, it's exactly, it's so different. And I would kind of bundle these together because I would think, well, I wouldn't know that unless I knew that from the Sira and then, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. So it um, definitely speaks to each other, but it's the prioritization is, is I, I like the way this is breaking it down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So any other thoughts, reflections? And challenge this. This is also the result of being challenged by students and such to us and modified over, over the, the years and such too. Right, so this is not set in stone. This is my current assessment. But what I've also done is the second thing. If something you find, uh, Professor Mazafar, I was going to ask, would you? So would you Shazan, say? Like, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, would you say this? Um, like, how how would this change over time? Like, do you still follow this model in the university setting versus like you know early childhood and like that, and then it changes as they get older and you focus so other things. So if we're talking about age uh, range. Yeah, the evolution um, shifts. So one way to think about parenting is you want to teach your child to teach their child the deen. You want your child to preserve or to attempt to preserve the deen in their own child. That's essentially what you want. You know, and of course, you know, listen all this. I mean, you have that stuff too. But the point I'm making is that that's your default. That you're not just teaching them to know everything that they need to know. You're teaching them to be able to teach it to their kids. So you're not going to talk to a four-year-old. How are you going to teach this to your child? All right. I mean, that's going to be kind of kind of goofy, you know. Uh, but as they're getting older, you're going to start adding those things. In between those ages, that'll also be the obligations that you have to the people around you. Right. So relationships at the individual level, I'm calling character and manners. What's built into this in character uh, is also ownership. 
So the point you'll hear from me many times is that what is adulthood? Adulthood is taking ownership for your condition. True adulthood is taking ownership for all the conditions you need to take ownership of. Could be the people under your care. It could be your neighbor. All this is part of adulthood. Childhood is how much you leave it up to other people. Babyhood is, or spoiled brathood, is how much you blame your condition on others. Did we talk about uh, my volleyball student last week? Yeah, probably not relevant, but... I mean, just to make this point about adulthood, uh, there's parts of your life that are not your fault, right? That are the result of someone else's choices. And the extreme example of that is I have a student who was on her high school volleyball team and they're on a road trip and she's asleep in the backseat. The driver's driving. The driver's probably texting in the rain. And you see where this is going. Driver gets into a horrible car accident. Driver walks away with minimal scratches. The student in the backseat who was asleep, paraplegic. Okay. All she can move is her face. She can't move her head. She can't move her neck. She can only move her face, her expressions. And so her condition is somebody else's fault. It is 100% somebody else's fault. And in terms of her living her life, she has to take ownership for her condition. And that's adulthood. Her other option is just to spend her whole life using that driver as her excuse for everything she doesn't accomplish in life. And so the amount we blame on others is how much of a baby we are. The amount we rely upon others when we have the capability to do something is how much of a child we are. So for my undergrads, it's, you know, their parents are paying their tuition, right? I mean, it's not something I criticize them over. It's something they're relying on their their parents for. Adulthood is how much you take ownership of your life. So whatever percentage of your life you take ownership of is what percent you are an adult. And thus, I'm saying that this general rectangle on the left, the model stays the same, but then the depth of what you're emphasizing will grow. I mean, easy example of that is when you look at Surta Nas, right? One reading of is what? That you have Rabb and then Malik and then Ilah. These are parts of a person's spiritual, mental maturity development. That a child understands Rabb in the sense of a nourisher, like they understand their parents, like the Dua Rabbayani Sahira. And then Malik, an older child, understands obedience. Right. And then an older person understands ilah, complete voluntary loving surrender. So that's all all built in to 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 the text right before our eyes. But the model I'm suggesting is still this model on the left. And what's built into the right is that all of that information, all of that is important, but it's the wrong medication for the wrong condition. And thus it becomes trivia. So, you know, pick some random medication that you just happen to know all about, but have no reason to apply it. That's what the the bottom the box on the right is. Hey, Ali, you were about to say something? Um, yeah. What was the um sorry, what's like the age range for the childhood for this? Uh I was just curious. So um, here I'm this is all ages, but the question I oh, raised okay. is more in the context of, of grade schoolers. Oh, okay, great. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
And then, sorry, one other question. Um, what like, uh, for the relationships box, couldn't you also put like uh, God in that as well? Like a lot. Yeah, on that. I'd still say okay. I still suggest that all of this is your relationship with Allah. Okay. Yeah. And like those three are literally your relationship with Allah. Makes sense. So would you would you also say um, like when you see students come in? Like you see this in kind of their mannerisms, like they're very theology and law focused. But when it comes to relationships that you see it lack a lot. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you think about what do parents primarily teach their kids, it's that big box. They're teaching you manners and character, right? Here's how you talk to uncle. Here's how you talk to auntie. You know, you're not supposed to say this. Smack, you know, all that stuff, right? And, and the point is, that's actually what most of our teaching is in our communities. But we idealize the stuff on the right as though that's the true Islamic learning. And I'm suggesting the true Islamic learning is that big box on the left. It's the whole thing on the left. But the practical lived Islam is beyond a little bit in those first three boxes. It's the big box on the left. Now, if there's someone who is aspiring for more, the excellence thing becomes much more in-depth. Or someone for whom you wanted them to have more. So if you want the kid, your kid to be the best of the best, that's a different conversation. This I'm speaking about, you know, the, the common Muslim which they should be taught. Yeah, I think what, yeah, yeah, what you said ahead, too, Jason. like there's, I mean, you can probably go into this in depth and part, part of what you were saying is, I mean, the countless kind of narrations we have about manners and how that uh, I did not come except to perfect character that's what the prophet says right and that is what the prophet was known for before what he came right if he was not known for that would there have been any benefit for the wahi in terms of the people right now another thing I want you to consider is the approach that I've taken here is one of the most fundamental approaches to all philosophy. The ought and the is, which is often sometimes broken down as idealism in, in or realism, no, idealism and realism. Just about all philosophy can be categorized in either the left or the right. So how society is, how people are, all those things. Either it'll be this is how things should be. So the left might be kind of utopia. So when you talk about what is din, what is the establishment of the Muslim polity, we're speaking the language of idealism, right? <clears throat> And, and so this is just about all philosophy gets broken down to these two things. Then there's something that's sort of in the middle, which is the primary American school of philosophy, and that is called pragmatism, which is sort of realism with a certain dosage of idealism built in there. And this is something that I think you naturally start becoming as you get older. Either you shift from being idealist to skeptical or jaded 
or if you still have some optimism, you shift from being idealist to pragmatist. And that is like the most dominant American school of philosophy. Okay, <clears throat> any other questions uh, about that? All right, let's uh, go back to our... Um... I actually did have a question on that. Yes. Uh, so can you bring up the chart again, sorry? Yeah, give me one second here. Um... Can you see it? Yeah. So yeah. when you say by excellence, like you remember last week, you said about Dean and Dunya. So yeah. that would, I would, I would assume you would include that. But when you say for like, if, if a person just has excellence and relationships, like if they have both knocked those down, wouldn't you say that does give fiction theology is just your relationship with the law? Like if that is what a kid is growing up, like, for example, I know some kids that, you know, from high school, like they, they're not the most religious people. Like they're, you know, the Duskia fiction theology isn't as strong, but their relationships with people and their excellence yeah. is like by far the best I've ever seen. Yeah. Like how would Allah SWT like judge that? Like they might not have the most knowledge, but they're just excellent in terms of everything they do. But yeah, someone who studied Dean, for example, but they don't have relationship and excellence. Oh, totally. So uh I would frame it in the context of the seeking of forgiveness. That in terms of seeking forgiveness from Allah. You seek forgiveness and you can test to see if you're genuine. And then if you pass the test of being genuine, inshallah, you're forgiven. The general or majority opinion is that if you're seeking forgiveness from somebody else, like, you know, let's say I wronged you, Allah's not going to forgive you unless that person forgives you. And so if we look at it through that lens, if a person is asking for forgiveness from everybody, and they're a person of super high standard of relationships, conduct and such, but they're weak on their ibadah, inshallah, Allah knows best, you know, they'll be in good shape. If they are solid in making their prayers, and they're horrible in their character, again, Allah knows best, uh, I think that's harder to justify. I also think that's harder to sustain as well. Like, you can sustain it in yourself to a degree, uh, but I don't think it'll be sustained in your children. Right. And think of it from another perspective. Which da'wa is stronger? Someone who is militant and making all their prayers or someone who is really upright? Yeah. So what would you, like... So, like, based off this graph, like, you would try to do hand-in-hand hand, or do you, would you start off with like excellence and relationships or do you start so, with <laughs> there i would i would even defer to what the prophet himself says peace be upon him that when do you start with the thick upon them when they're essentially puberty or a little bit before that and and so you're making them pray right and you're making them really see prayer as something you have to do but relationships and behavior you gotta be teaching them that since since the beginning Right, according to whatever they can, they can handle. Right, you can't take these crayons from someone else; they don't belong to you. That's going to be all the way from when they're little. Make sense? Yeah. Now, if they're seeing you make your prayers, they're already beginning to recognize that this is something important. And then, you know, like so many kids, you know, including myself, they're going to want to start fasting way earlier than what you might plan. I mean, I remember the first time I started fasting, we're on vacation in Karachi, 
and I'm like seven, my mom makes me this omelet sandwich. I'm like, no, I'm fasting, right? I still kind of miss that sandwich, you know, because probably was really good. But anyway, the point is that um, that yeah, you start around puberty time, you know, a bit before it. Any other questions so far about all this? Okay, so let me see if I can switch this way. Y'all can see the Socrates on your screen? Okay. Yes. So the cultivation of virtue in youth. Virtue here, I'm making for our purposes synonymous with character. Birr. Okay. So, and so then we're talking about, um, about what we can sort of infer from here is Socrates is saying that this guy Miletus, you know, is focused on the cultivation of virtue in youth, but he has the exact opposite of it. Okay. We'll see more of that. Um, Socrates sometimes can be really, really biting and snide. Okay, so let's have Euthyphro and Socrates. How about, uh, who was Euthyphro and Socrates last time? Uh, me and Shazan. Okay, how about Adnan and Fezan? Adnan wants to be Euthyphro, and Fezan wants to be Socrates. Sounds good. Yeah. I think I'm done. You'll start. Yeah. I hope he may, but I rather fear, Socrates, that the opposite will turn out to be the truth. My opinion that in attacking you, he is simply aiming a blow at the foundation of the state. But in what way does he say you corrupt the young? He brings a wonderful accusation against me, which at first hearing excites surprise. He says that I am a poet or maker of gods and that I invent new gods and deny the existence of old ones. This is the ground of his indictment. All right. So in our language, what's the accusation? Sorry, I don't know how to turn off my on. Maybe it's a sign. What's his, uh, in our language, what's his, what's the accusation? What term would you use? Scared or bida. Sorry? Scared or bida. Yeah, shirk or bida. He's inventing gods. So we won't really have the fear. I mean, if someone's inventing gods, they're going to be in really bad shape. But if they're inventing things about Allah, that's a problem. Oh, this is a perfect discussion, you know, as we're in the month of Molid. So, yeah. So he is bringing these accusations. I am a poet. Oh, snap. Maker of gods. I invent new gods, deny the existence of old ones. This is the ground of his, his indictment. So the closest thing for us would be, for example, if someone is adding attributes to a law, ignoring other ones, but even that we don't really hear about too much. But if someone is adding things that look like acts of worship, that's the debate, right? Over, over Maulid is, is this, in, are people regarding this as an act of worship? If it is, that's a problem. If it isn't, that's a different conversation. All right, continue. Beautiful. I understand. I understand, Socrates. He means to attack you about the familiar sign, which occasionally, as you say, comes to you. He thinks that you are a neologian. So you invent neologian. Neologian, and he is going to have you up before the court for this. He knows that such a charge is readily received by the world, as I myself know too well. For when I speak in the assembly about divine things and foretell the future to them, they laugh at me and think me a madman. Yet every word I say is true, but they are jealous, jealous of us all, and we must be brave and go at them. 
Okay, so what's taking place here? Euthyphro is beginning to insert his own story here now, right? First, Euthyphro is saying, look, um, he's attacking you. This is nothing new. You're going to have to go to court. Uh, but I face the same problem sometimes. You know, when I am speaking publicly about Dean-related matters, yeah, and then these guys are all foretellers, and I give them prophecies, they all start laughing at me thinking I'm nuts. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it, I mean, chances are most of the circles you guys are involved with are people who are somewhat religious. Uh, but what happens if you say, look, the shepherd, the barefoot naked shepherds are going to make tall buildings. That's what Dubai is. That is the tower above the Kaaba. Yeah, a lot of people are going to actually start laughing at you, even though in our religious circles, everyone talks about those things. All right, continue. Socrates. Your laughter, friend Euthyphro, is not a matter of much consequence. For a man may be thought wise, but Athenians, I suspect, do not much trouble themselves about him until he begins to impart his wisdom to others. And then for some reason or other, perhaps, as you say, from jealousy, they are angry. All righty. So nobody cares until you start speaking. And from Socrates' perspective, what is it that gets people upset? Is this consistent with our understanding of Dean and the wrong that people do? So one school I'd like you to consider is when you look at the last two surahs, one surah is a prayer for protection from the evil of shaitan, right? Another surah is a prayer for protection from the evil that people do, right? When the darkness spreads and the witches blow on knots in Ida Hasid and Ida Hasid, or Hasid and Ida Hasid, like the, the, the Hasid, the envier when they envy, right? So a point I'd like you to consider in terms of human nature in our paradigm is that envy may be the root of much harm, much evil. If that is correct, Apply it to the story of Adam and Eve and the devil. Where is the envy? That Adam was created from clay. Keep going. And uh, Shaitan was created from fire. Well, I mean, shit. so who is the envy? Who is envying who? Uh, Shaitan is envying uh, Adam and Eve. Well, he says, I'm better than him. Yep. <clears throat> Yeah, no, no. I think there's also uh, a component in that story of Shaitan's jealous of like the love uh, Adam Islam got or the recognition he has from Allah mm -hmm. um, because he feels entitled to whatever station he may have gotten and he mm -hmm. didn't see that station as like a mercy. He saw it as like a result of everything he did. Mm -hmm. So when Allah gave Adam whatever uh, station and he was given, I think he he was jealous of that. Like, oh, Allah gave gave this to you, but I worked so hard just for wherever mm -hmm. I was. Mm -hmm. cool. Is that you about to say something? Same exact thing. Yeah. Like, if you look at that first narrative in Asut al-Baqarah, Allah now says he's going to make a khalifa. The angels are saying, you're going to create someone who's going to shed blood. All we do is praise you and glorify you, right? And what we're often saying is, well, how do they know this? Yeah. 
But what if we take a step back and think, okay, maybe they're saying this because they're asking Allah, why would you create someone else when you already have us <clears throat> as your robots to do all your job? And then the accursed devil also believed he should have been the Khalifa. So the angels rationally, the angels are basically, you know, creatures of logic. They're rationally saying, well, I mean, we don't understand. This doesn't make any sense to us. You already have us. Why do you need anything else? If you make anything else, it's probably going to cause destruction. So. <laughs> Whereas the accursed devil felt he should have been the Khalifa. And so then to prove Allah wrong, first he hides behind arrogance. Okay. And what is arrogance? This is later on in Al-Baqarah, that whenever you're hit with something you know is true, but you don't want to face it, you hide behind arrogance. And so then he decides, okay, because you made this happen to me, I'm going to sit on a straight path and show you that you're wrong. So point I'd like you to consider is the downfall of the devil is because of his jealousy that Allah chose Adam. Peace be upon him. And to make the story more interesting for our purposes, he hides behind arrogance uh, as it's as though he himself is trapped by arrogance. The arrogance is going to prevent him from taking ownership for his choices. It's going to prevent him from seeking forgiveness from Allah. Because in that story, in the Al-Baqarah part of the story, but in the whole story, everything he asks for, Allah gives him. Don't send me to hell now. Send me to hell on the day of judgment. Granted. Because you made this happen to me, I'm going to sit in the straight path and take your true believers down and grant it to try. But you're not going to be able to take down my true believers. Adam and Eve, peace be upon them, go to the tree. They ask for forgiveness. Granted. But he never asked for forgiveness. And because he is hiding behind arrogance, he cannot bring himself to do so. And what is it that's compelled him to hide behind arrogance? It is jealousy. So that is a point for your consideration, that it may be that hasad, which is the worst of all the types of jealousy, is essentially the fuel for just about all the wrong that people do. I had a question, Omer. Um, yes. Do you feel as though... When I read this, uh, I was thinking that people may be afraid that, um, how do I put it? It would be, it, it, like with the Prophet Sallallahu I felt like uh, like in the beginning, the Kofar didn't really take him seriously. But when his, his uh, kind of movement kind of grew, it became a matter, at least I felt like it became a matter of like, um, uh, like a power struggle and like, the way society would, uh, is run would be would would become vastly different from what it is right now. Uh, I think what is yeah. how it was back then. Well, so, I do think that um, a lot of the people in power knew that their their power was at risk, right? Yeah, and thus they're opposing him, right? Abu Jahl, what was his complaint? He didn't have any issues with with the message. He said, "If we let him win, then Banu Hashim is going to take over." Right, mm. and I mean, he used to listen to the Prophet reciting Quran, you know, peace be upon him. So I think, in terms of yeah, them, <clears throat> it was the that risk. 
there are narratives of like you know the people who are jealous at the beginning like you know i want the prophet to be part of Banu hashim and that could also be part of the jealousy of the jews of medina right for why they rejected should have been one of us Okay, what time is 55? Uh, let us read just a little bit more. All right, Euthyphro. I am never likely to try their temper in this way. Socrates. I dare say not, for you are reserved in your behavior and seldom impart your wisdom. But I have a benevolent habit of pouring out myself to everybody and would even pay for a listener. And I'm afraid that the Athenians may think me too talkative. Now, if, as I was saying, they would only laugh at me as you say, they laugh at you, the time might pass gaily enough in the court, but perhaps they may be in earnest, and then what the end will be, you soothsayers only can predict. So what is he saying? He's basically saying, you're pretty wise, you don't talk too much. Me, I'm starving for people to listen to me. I'll even pay people to listen to me. Right. And it's basically me with you guys right now, right? And then continue, Euthyphro. I dare say the affair will end in nothing. Socrates, and that you will win your cause. And I think I shall win my own. All right, Euthyphro once again keeps inserting himself, but saying, you know, you're in the right. And let's stop right here, because then Euthyphro is going to share his, his story. All righty, any questions, thoughts, reflections? No, no, man. All righty. So I don't have any homework assignment right now. But I would like you to explore this idea, this hypothesis that I'm sharing, that one of the primary fuels of all the wrong that people do, including the jinns, including shaitan, the accursed shaitan himself, is jealousy, envy. And then to really flush out the idea, think of everything that's involved with that. What is it that causes jealousy? So we're saying, Shaitan hid behind arrogance to hide his jealousy, to overcompensate for his jealousy. What was he actually, you know, why is he being jealous? Yeah, Allah picked um, Adam, but why would that make him jealous beyond just the obvious, you know, why'd you pick him and not me? What is he lacking? And I think we'll get some insights in human nature. That's also the interesting thing. Human nature and jinn nature seem to be very similar in, in the Quran. The difference is that jinn behavior seems to be like the maturity of a child. But same universe. Alrighty, we will stop right here then. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah tell you all, inshallah, and we will see you.